Coming up in this podcast, Indigenous Business and Reconciliation Week, David Singleton, Simmons Group and Residential Construction, Generational Change at Listed Perth Companies, Black Squan and our special report on the wine industry, plus our Great for the State feature on health and wellbeing. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Uh, Mark, you attended Reconciliation WA's big event to round out this big week. 1,300 people was a record for Crown. Yeah, no, look, it was a very impressive event on Friday morning at Crown. Uh, the speakers included Ken Wyatt. So there was a bit of history there. That was the first public address since Ken had been appointed Minister for Indigenous Australians. And he, of course, is the first Indigenous Australian to hold that portfolio. Yep. And also the first Indigenous Australian to be a uh, minister in the Cabinet. So very significant. And look, uh, people came out in force. A lot of people from across the business community Uh, The event had backing from the likes of BHP, Rio, Woodside. And one of these really interesting cases where the business community is engaging in what is sort of a broader social and political issue, um, which sparks debate from some people who say, you know, just focus on business. But I think the the majority view these days, and and I agree with it, is that there's a broader role for business. So Edgar Basto from BHP, for instance, spoke, and he talked about a lot of the things that they've been doing up in the Pilbara. Um, Someone from Rio spoke. A couple of interesting stats. In 1985, Rio had just two Indigenous employees in their iron ore business. Um, Now it's 13% of their iron ore workforce is Indigenous. So that's a measure of things have come a long way. Um, We've also had a lot of business people over the past week um, adding their support to the Uluru Statement. Now that was something that came out a couple of years ago, um, called for a voice for Indigenous people um, at the national level um, in political discussions, swiftly rejected by Malcolm Turnbull, who was Prime Minister at the time. Um, We've had the big mining companies, the big law firms, uh, the big accounting firms, um, universities, uh, Woodside, you know, very broad cross-section of business people coming out and saying, this is something we should engage with, yeah. and they like the sound of it. And I understand Ken Wyatt's kind of presented some sort of plan or has a kind of plan that may or may not be endorsed uh, posi- cabinet position, but something that he's brought to the table as uh, Indigenous... Well, look, Ken touched briefly on that in his address this morning, on Friday morning, you know, one thing that strikes me about Ken, he, in fact, he told a bit of his life history. You know, he was one of ten children. Um, his dad was a railway rigger. Um, his mum was a member of the Stolen Generations. So, you know, he had it tough. And he talked about some of the um, very overt prejudice that he and his family suffered as a youth. Mm. Um, but he's one of those people who's just looked on the positive and focused on the opportunity. Um, he's, he's very quietly spoken, but very powerful and he's not in a mad rush to try and change things he realizes that's not the way that we need a lot more um, I guess consultation and discussion and and making sure we get the policy settings right before things happen and uh, I don't know my hunch is he may well be proved far more effective than a lot of his predecessors who uh, were in more of a rush to make a big impact yeah no interesting 
Yeah. And, and one other observation, um, we actually had some, some bad news in this space. Uh, we've written a lot about Indigenous business, and there's a lot of contracting businesses up in the Pilbara in particular, um, owned and led by um, Aboriginal people. It's really tough to build a long-lasting and sustainable business in that space. And so the news during the week, um, a group called Indigenous Construction Resource Group has gone into liquidation. Now, at their peak, they had about 170 people. They had contracts with Fortescue Metals and Roy Hill and others. Um, you know, they were a very substantial presence in that space. Um, they had you know, some strong investor backing, um, but sadly, gone into liquidation. Mm. So while there's been a lot of progress, um, that's just a reminder of, of how tough it is to make lasting progress in this space. Yeah, but you know, business is business, Mark. I mean, you know, all sorts of businesses go broke for reasons that, you know, it's a, could be it's cyclical as much as anything else. So you're right, but there are lots of other uh, businesses, particularly up in the Pilbara, that are, that are maybe on more solid footing. And I guess we don't know the full story behind this one. So, And, and just briefly, I think a quick shout out that one of the reasons for the success of the uh, Reconciliation Week breakfast on Friday morning was that a lot of business groups across Perth, people like the AICD, um, CEDA, Committee for Perth, yeah. they all got together and jointly promoted the event. To so their, to their just, membership, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. a shout out to them for a job well done. No, totally, I agree. That's a, that's a, that's a big one. Um, now, Mark, this week we had uh, David Singleton, CEO of Austal, as our guest at one of our signature success and leadership events this week. Uh, he was very entertaining. Uh, what did you glean from the interview? It was a, a wonderful event and, and one of those occasions that reminds you that um, you know, seeing a person in the flesh and hearing them tell stories, you just can't beat it. Yeah. Um, and look, you know, David went right back to his early days, didn't he, about mm. uh, growing up in northern England um, in when times were tough, when his dad got laid off and his family couldn't afford to send him to university. Um, hence, he got a scholarship through the Ministry of Defence, which is where he subsequently worked. Um, he's had a really interesting career. He obviously loved working um, in, in the defence field um, yeah. as an engineer, um, travelled across Europe, some great anecdotes about working in Italy and uh, the, yes. the, the cultural differences between the English and the Italians. Very entertaining. Um, but also the story about how he ended up in Australia, that he, he got to a point, he was about 40, um, and he was working very hard and he wanted to, I guess, strike a bit of a better work-life balance Yeah, and, and do something that suited his family. Do you know, that's an interesting point. And, you know, the work-life balance question comes up a lot in those kind of interviews. Uh, generally, it's a question from the floor, to be honest. But the way he summarised, he'd seen a report, and I presume someone had put it on his desk, <laughs> that the average, uh, the busy, the average successful busy executive uh, retired at 60 and were, or retired at 60 and, re and was dead by 62 or something like that. Effectively, there was a two or two and a half years of life expectancy. And he was like, hang on, <laughs> why do you work hard for retirement? He said, everyone was talking about retirement. All the dinner parties he had, they're all talking about where they went on holidays to get out of Britain and where they were going to retire on the, you know, the Mediterranean to get out of Britain. So he kind of thought, hang on, this isn't right. So he was having those thoughts at the same time as, as he reached that midpoint in his career. Yeah. And then so he came out here. Originally, he joined Clough, mm. uh, another engineering business, and 
once again had some great stories to tell about how you know Clough was a listed company but still with a very strong family influence there mm. um, and he was sort of quite struck by um, how unsophisticated Clough was at that time in how yeah. they ran things and all the risks that they took yeah. um, and that was the undoing of that business in many ways they took on lots of big projects and uh, some of them didn't work out um, but of course now chief executive at Austell and you know, one of the themes that came that, that we took away from it was that that business is like every business has had some setbacks, but he talked about the way that they've turned that into a positive. Um, so, for instance, he talked about dealing with cyber attacks. Mm. You know, that's a, a, a challenge for every organisation, um, and also about the fact that they didn't pick up the big contract for the offshore patrol vessels um, for the Australian government. Uh, that went to a different. Uh, consortium um, headed by a German shipbuilder, Lawson. Um, and in fact, David was saying that, you know, Austell, they're, they're the, I mean, in fact, they're a world leader. You know, they're a major supplier to the US Navy, and yet they couldn't pick up this contract yeah. for the Australian Navy. Yeah, crazy. So, but look, you know, they built up. But, the, but he had a great, you know, they built up the team, didn't they? They built up a really good team because they just, they actually couldn't believe they weren't going to win that contract. That's so right. when they didn't win it, they were devastated. But then they said they had all this growth in other parts of the business and they had this great team to deal with. So it was kind of, you know, it was a blessing in disguise by the sounds of things. Yeah. No, very entertaining and lots of insights and lots of lessons drawn about, you know, dealing with adversity and, and setting goals for your business and how you achieve them. Yeah. No, no, it was fascinating. Uh, and that'll be up uh, as video if people want to uh, catch it later. Uh, now, Kelvin Ryan is an ex-BGC uh, bigwig. Uh, is planning. He's run Simmons Group now out of Melbourne. He's planning to bring that group to WA. Uh, so that uh, that's a resident challenge to the uh, incumbent residential housing uh, groups, uh, including BGC, I suppose. Um, you know, we haven't seen that happen before here. No. Look, great story from Dan Wilkie. Um, yeah, look, it's fascinating that... We've got these very big home building companies in based in Perth, so led by the likes of BGC and uh, Dale Alcox ABN Group, uh, Julian Walters Business, JWH, um, and a, a bunch of others. Um, they've had the WA market to themselves, whereas on the East Coast, the big players there move interstate. You know, they yeah. spread from, from Melbourne up to Sydney, up to the Gold Coast. Um, the Nullarbor has been, you know, a step too far. Um, until now. Mm. So really interesting that Kelvin's come out and he said he sees opportunities here. Now, ironic in a way, because it's the same week where the housing industry forecast group, uh, that's where all the, the industry people get together and say, what's the outlook? They've just revised down mm. their forecasts. Um, so another big fall in housing starts um, to about 15,500. Yeah, right. Now, that's half the level we were at um, what five years ago? Yeah, you know, we were north of thirty thousand. Um, now it's fallen down to fifteen and a half. Um, but look, Kelvin said, if you're going to move into a new market, the best time to do it is when things are quiet. Yeah, you know, the worst time to move in is when the market's booming. Yeah, exactly. Because everything's hot, costs are high, it's hard to get good people. Um, so it's a classic counter-cyclical opportunity that he's seeing here, um, and it adds to the. Effectively, Simon's group is in, I think, every other major state. Um, so coming into WA um, adds to it. Um, and it's also another interesting move in this nationalising or 
if that's the right word, because we spoke, spoke a couple of weeks ago about the fact that Dale Alcock's business, ABN Group, they moved into Melbourne. Yes. So they were the rare example of a Perth builder jumping across the Nullarbor the other way. They do 45% of their business in Melbourne now. So, you know, Dale thanks his lucky stars that they made that move. It's yeah. um, stood his business in good stead. No, definitely. I mean, I actually bumped into him during the week and he said it's very solid, even though even though <coughs> the, um, the market's cooling off there. He said it's just so much bigger than here. There's just so many more opportunities than... Uh, than what's here at the moment for, for, for his company. So he's very bullish on, on Victoria by the sounds of things. And also, Kelvin made a few observations where he said, you know, the federal government has got the scheme that they're planning to introduce for first home buyers uh, with the low deposit. Um, the uh, Some of the lending guidelines that uh, APRA is putting in place have softened. Mm. Uh, interest rate cuts are on the way. So he's saying, look, you know, things are, things are tough at the moment in WA, but they're going to get better. Yeah. Now, uh, Mark, you've, you've had a very busy week, actually. So you've studied the unique phenomenon of generational change at ASX-listed companies. And you just mentioned Clough there, which would have been an example had it still been listed and controlled by the Clough family and the second generation, as it, as it kind of was. What have you found out there in ASX land in, in WA? Yeah, look... We've sort of spoken to many people in family businesses, and one of the big issues they face is succession planning. Who's going to take over from the founder of the business? And you know, this is one of the big challenges that many family businesses face. Um, in many cases, there isn't anybody there who either has the skills or the desire to take over from their parents. And in many of those cases, they pursue an ASX listing or a trade sale because they don't have a succession plan. What's really interesting, though, is that where you have a company that's listed on the ASX, the founder is still there. They're the chairman. They've still got a big shareholding, you know, 30 or 40%. And I'm thinking people like David Watson at CTI Logistics, um, John Chan at Finbar, uh, Dan Smetana at Joyce Corporation, um, and a bigger one, you know, Kerry Stokes at Seven Group and Seven West Media. Um, now, these are this fascinating example of a, a listed company that has a, still has a very strong family influence. Yes. And what those examples um, all have in common is that they've found people from the second generation, all happen to be males, um, who are coming through to take over the business. Yeah. So Ryan Stokes, for instance, is already managing director of Seven Group. Um, you know, clearly the heir apparent to his dad. You know, similar to what Rupert Murdoch's been going through uh, with his children. Yep. Um, he's got the two boys that are um, have you know, set to take over. So you know, David Watson's got two of his sons who've come into CTI. Um, John Chan's got his son Ronald in there at Finbar. Um, similar story with um, Aspermont, where Alex Kent has come in as managing director. His dad's still the chairman. Yep. Um, you know, at Deck Mill, Scott Criddle did a similar thing some years ago, took over from his dad, Dennis. Um, it's a challenge because you want to have that continuity for the family, but you've got governance standards to maintain, you've got investors to please. So not just anybody 
can step in and fill the shoes. Yeah. You know, they've, they've, got, they've got the next generation has to have the right skills and experience. So, you know, in all of these cases that I've looked at, um, you know, the, the, the kids have had some experience outside the family business. Um, they've also built up some experience. Um, and and, and, and all, the, the challenges in front of them. And are all of those definitely labelled to be or have become the managing director or some of them just in in key positions and that may happen in the future? Yeah, there's, there's a spectrum there. Yep. So, you know, there's several like, you know, Ryan Stokes, Scott Criddle, Alex Kent, they're already managing director. Um, other cases, um, they've either come onto the board or taken an executive role and it remains to be seen whether they can go to the uh, to actually lead the business gotcha fascinating all right well lots of detail there looking forward to reading that um, now mark uh, black swan there's been a bit of news black swan state theater company uh, it's pretty uh, pretty uh, important cog in the arts wheel um, it's been a bit of change there yeah now look this was a story that uh, we broke uh, a couple of weeks ago when it first happened. Change of leadership at the top, which has caught many people by surprise. Uh, Natalie Jenkins was the executive director there. Um, people in the arts sector were shocked when it was announced that she'd be leaving. Um, and her replacement is a lady named Danielle Norrish, who'd actually come onto the board just a few months ago. And she was named as the incoming executive director. Raised lots of questions about the decision-making process there around the governance, around the, the succession planning again. Mm. Um, there's been a bit of a shift in where how Black Swan is, is pitching this. Um, the chair is Nicola Forrest uh, from Mindaroo. Um, they're, of course, a, a substantial financial supporter of Black Swan, you know, along with many other charitable and arts organisations across WA. Um, now, Natalie Jenkins had been planning to work through to the end of the year. Well, she's now left. So that sort of clearly says uh, not a happy situation there. And they're also saying that the executive director position has not been filled, um, that Danielle will be there on an interim basis. Oh, I see. Okay. And they're going to go out later in the year and go through a process of finding someone to fill that role permanently, yeah, okay. which may in fact be Danielle Norrish, but they're going to go out to market. So there's been you know, a significant sort of shifting in their stance there. This is particularly timely for us because we have an event coming up on June the 11th. Uh, we've partnered with Screen West and it's all around um, the arts and business. And this is a fascinating little microcosm of issues that might get discussed there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got the Minister for the Arts, David Templeman, he'll be speaking, and then there's a panel. Um, Andrew Hager, Chief Executive of Mindaroo, will be on the panel. Uh, Janet Holmes Court, who in fact was a founder of Black Swan um, and has expressed some misgivings about what's happened there recently, she is on the panel. Uh, Sheila Magadza, who heads up the Chamber of Arts and Culture. And most intriguingly, Ben Elton. Yes. Very entertaining. Looking forward to hearing what he's got to say. So there's a great panel there. Yeah. Lots of really interesting things to discuss particularly against the backdrop of what's been going on at Black Swan. And look, Mark, I'm not looking for an in-depth answer here, but do you think with Black Swan, is it because it's Black Swan and it is quite a, you know, it's a notable and uh, uh, important theatre company, uh, or is it because 
it's Nicola Forrest is the new chair and it's Mindaroo and Mindaroo have got, you know, they're a big funder of not just Black Swan but lots of arts organisations and they put a lot of money in and, and, and there's that perception that, you know, that she's changing things. You know, is it is it a bit of both, or uh, I think it is a bit of both. You know, it's a high-profile organisation, and yeah, look, I pick up this um, what I find a really interesting um, approach that people have towards Andrew and Nicola Forrest and Mindaroo. You know, they're extraordinarily generous philanthropists. Mm. Um, they put huge amounts of money into lots of really impressive things, and yet, you know, I meet a lot of people who. Are just a little bit uncomfortable about all this big money and the influence that people believe it brings. Yeah. Um, so yes, certainly a lot of focus because it is Nicola Forrest. Um, but also I, I very much feel as though the, the process that Black Swan went through could and should have been a lot more transparent and better. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, look, they're not a listed company and maybe that's just a, a learning curve for everybody. Um, now, Mark, uh, our Great for the State's third instalment uh, is on health and well-being. What have we found there? Now, Dan Wilkie put this one together. Um, like our other editions of Great for the State, it explore, explores a broad theme. So Dan's looked at a, a whole bunch of things, one of which is some of the leading lights doing really interesting medical research in that area. So people like Barry Marshall, Nobel Prize winner from UWA, um, Angus Turner from the Lion's Eye Institute and a 40 Under 40 winner, uh, Pete Leadman at the Perkins Institute. Um, you know, these people are doing world-class research and really interesting things. Um, but then for something totally different, Dan's also looked at Perth's elite sporting clubs and some of the work that they're doing about partly around promoting community health, um, but also the field of sports science and you know, the investment that they're supporting in that space. Um, and then a third uh, big piece he's got in there is around some of the mass um, participation events. Um, so things like the big bike rides and the big fun runs, um, which are both very significant fundraisers for a lot of these sort of charity and research groups, um, but also do a lot of good for I guess, getting people off the couch and yeah. out there exercising and being healthy. Yeah, no, true, absolutely true. No, I look forward to that. Uh, you know, I think uh, obviously one of one of the great things about WA is we've got wonderful weather and wonderful conditions uh, and we've got this leading edge. You know, we've been wealthy for a long time and we've invested heavily in our medical sector and I think it's, uh, you know, there's, there's some fruits being born from that. Um, now, Mark, our special report on wineries. You've done this feature as well. Um, what's happening out there? Look, the, the wine industry, it's a, a very significant industry for WA, um, both as, you know, it's, it's a significant producer and an employer, but it also ties in with the tourism appeal of Western Australia. So there are a lot of strands to that industry. Uh, so in the last year, annual production was about um, 68 million litres of wine. That's you know fairly steady in, in the broad scheme of things. Um, within that total, about 14% of that is exported. Yeah, so right. there's a really interesting difference that the the, the really uh, you know, WA in fact makes a very small contribution to Australian exports. Yeah. Um, as much as we love our wine industry, um, it stands apart for the quality of the wine that's produced here. But in terms of scale, it's actually very small. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, you know, uh, 
I think there, there isn't it something like two or three percent of the national industry, but but twenty five percent of the premium end or something. Like, something that's generally like the that. statistic yes. that's thrown yeah. out there. Yeah, you know, um, I could be out by a few. <laughs> What we do through our research, um, and this is all up as part of our BNIQ database, up and available on our website, is we talk to all the producers. There's nearly 100 in Western Australia on our database and get information from them about their volumes of production, uh, where they source their grapes, and also how export-focused they are. So, you know, some of them like um, Ferngrove um, and... uh, uh, they ex- export about 60% of their wine. Um, most others export about 15%, yeah. you know, in the line with the industry average. The big player in the industry just gets on, keeps on getting bigger. That's uh, Fogarty Wine Group, um, headed up by Peter Fogarty. Mm. Um, they've got, um, you know, half a dozen different uh, brands, and they also own the, or a majority stake in the Margaret River Vintners business. So it's the biggest processor in the Margaret River region. Yep. Um, there was a big transaction earlier this year because they, their partner in that had been the McWilliams Wine Group out of New South Wales. They hit financial problems. So a group called Laguna Bay, they're an uh, investment manager out of Brisbane. They bought in with a $60 million transaction earlier this year, uh, one that slipped through fairly quietly. It didn't get much publicity. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, that leaves um, Fogarty, though. That on, on the numbers I'm seeing, they produce more than a quarter of all the wine in Western Australia. Is that right? So very big. And that puts them ahead of, you know, the big corporate players like Accolade Wines and Treasury Wine Estates, you know, mm-hmm. much larger than them. Then you've got the other big family groups like Birch Family Wines, Carnegie Family Vineyards, Vass Felix. Um, yeah, very substantial operations, but Fogarty Wine Group uh, is, is far and away the big player in WA. Oh, fabulous. All right, look forward to reading that. Thanks, Mark. Um, and appreciate all those words of wisdom. Uh, Business News has joined forces with Perth-based startup CXWA to promote a new way to engage and learn about the Chinese market, the Beijing Business Discovery Tour, which is on in October. Uh, As a sponsor of the planned tour, Business News will be part of the delegation for the week-long visit to the Chinese capital uh, to visit leading businesses, see key districts and meet important government officials. Go to cxwa.com.au to find out more. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.